Good evening and welcome to Monsters Among Us. I am your guide, Derek Hayes. Hello there. Thank you for returning for another hair-raising episode. Before we jump in, I want to thank a few folks that graciously donated to the show. Thank you to Michael D., Anna G., and Julie J. Your contributions are very much appreciated. As always, if you'd also like to donate, please click the donate button on the webpage at monstersamonguspodcast.com. One more piece of business I'd like to address before we start. We are less than two weeks away from the official launch of Cryptid Crate, the first and only monthly box subscription geared toward cryptid and paranormal fans. If you're at all interested, please head over to cryptidcrate.com and subscribe for email updates but more importantly, discounts on your first box. These boxes are going to be awesome, so you don't want to miss out, and you certainly do not want to miss out on the sweet discount. Alright, let's get scary. When one thinks of the traditional ghost story, several images are conjured up. Hook hands, glowing white specters, or a frightening call from somewhere in the house. Just like stereotypical subject matter, the telling of these tales also has its staples. Perhaps none more so than the traditional summer camp. Anyone that's ever seen an 80s horror film can tell you that there's no better stage for these yarns than a roaring campfire or a row of bunk beds dimly lit by flashlights. It's this very setting that our first story of the evening takes place. But unlike fictional accounts meant to scare unruly children, the following story is true. This is Kevin's Call. Hi there, this is uh, Kevin from California, and my story has to do with when I was a summer camp counselor up in Middletown, California. It was a all-boys uh, summer camp, and uh, while I was in high school, uh, I would go up there during the summer for four weeks. This happened back in late June of 1988. It was the summer before 
my senior year of high school. I had gone up there three years previously, had no paranormal activity, anything like that. Uh, we told ghost stories around this campfire and things like that, or in the uh, in the cabins, but you know nothing really ever happened. Well, this summer was different because the first week in one of the cabins, one of the counselors saw looked to be an apparition of an old lady in a wheelchair in the middle of the night, feeling her way down the middle of the cabin. You would have one counselor at one end, one counselor at the back end of the cabin, and then the campers were on single bunks lining both sides of the, of the cabin. So there was a long aisle running down the middle of the cabin. This happened around three o'clock in the morning. So the next day at breakfast, all the counselors would be in our dining room and uh, the counselor that saw it spoke up and said, you guys aren't going to believe this, but I saw an old lady in a wheelchair that looked to be like a ghost rolling her way down the middle of the aisle around three o'clock in the morning. And she disappeared out the, the back door, the back uh, door of the cabin. The other counselor that was in the back said, I thought I was dreaming. I saw the same thing. So we were all kind of like, yeah, whatever. You guys must have been, you know, hallucinating or whatever. So nothing happened really the rest of the week. Next Sunday, new campers showed up. In a different cabin, there was the oldest kids, the 13 to 15-year-old boys were in there. They were a cabin of about 12, again, with two counselors. And the two counselors were on bunk beds on one side of the cabin. And at the far other end of the cabin, by this boarded up door, which I always thought was a little odd. And again, in the middle of the night, they said their bunk, which was a bunk bed, started shaking violently. And as they both woke up, they looked at the other end of the cabin and sitting on the edge of the bed was a ghostly white, Again, what they said was an apparition sitting there on the edge of the bed while one of the campers was sleeping there. One of the cam- or one of the counselors sketched it and again next morning at breakfast showed it to us and goes, something weird's going on around here. This is what I saw last night. And the guy that was on the top bunk said, yeah, I woke up and saw the same thing. We're not lying. So now we see two ghosts over a two-week period in two different cabins. We did some like digging historically and uh it looks like the camp used to be a summer getaway for you know affluent people in the san francisco bay area and in the 1920s and 30s it was also a place during the uh prohibition where al capone's guys he would go to his gang supposedly the rumor was in that boarded up closet that i was talking about someone hung themselves years and years ago so we did the connection oh well maybe that's what that person was because the bunk was right flush up against that boarded up closet so i went home for the next week and nothing went on that third week while i was gone the next weekend when i came back uh one of the brothers who was uh kind of one of the camp directors would do a light uh kind of like a perimeter check of the uh uh, camp after lights out and all the kids and counselors were tucked away in their cabins and stuff. And he said that he had walked out to the bridge uh, that uh, connected the camp to the main road, Highway 175, right south of Cobb Mountain there. 
as he was going out there, he saw what looked to be a spectral figure of an old monk or friar, like Father Unipro Serra, the, the founder of the California Mission. He said he had a big brim hat on and like a, a robe and stuff, and he was like gesturing him to, to come towards the bridge and things like that. Well, he wisely did not. He turned around and headed back to uh, his cabin. So now we're definitely, the next morning he kind of tells us this over breakfast. He's like, okay, well, we've had our third sighting now, and relayed the story to us. The strange thing about the bridge, though, was that it had buckled and collapsed under the weight of a gravel truck that tried to cross it. It completely, you know, broke, and uh, there was just a kind of like a a walkway to, to go across it. There was not a way for a vehicle to get across that bridge anymore. Rest of that week goes by, so we head to the last week of summer camp. It's the last night of camp, and, you know, we've all been kind of on edge and, and things like that. And the last night, people would be in two shifts, and I was in the early shift where we would watch a movie with the kids. They'd sleep outside um, in a common area, and then we'd show another movie, and, you know, everyone would go to sleep and things like that. So I was off. The first movie had ended, and we were there talking with uh, uh, my math teacher or my future uh, math teacher uh, for my senior year. And just, you know, oh, it's been a nice summer and, and things like that. All of a sudden, out on the road that I mentioned, Highway 175, we hear a screeching of brakes and a loud bang like a car crash. So since we're off duty, we jump into the uh, camp van and we head out quickly to the, the bridge and we run across that bridge and we can see now there's a bunch of cars stopped on a, it's a two lane mountain highway. So, you know, very narrow. And we see that there's a young woman that's out of her car on the, the side of the road. And we come up, we're like, are you okay? Are you okay? What happened? She's like, you know, it was the craziest thing. I was coming down the mountain and, uh, you know, I spent the day up at Clear Lake and uh, came around this corner and in the middle of the road was an old lady in a wheelchair. And I swerved to miss her and uh, hit the side of the, the mountain there. And uh, and when I, I think I hit her and she might have, you know, ended up in the creek alongside the road. So some of my braver uh, companions, counselors, grabbed flashlights and searched all up and down the, the creek that was there. Didn't find a thing. That's my story. Uh, we don't really know what happened. I went back the following year. No ghost stories or anything like that. And sadly, there was a huge wildfire up in that area uh, last summer. And uh, I believe the camp is everything around it uh, has been burned down. So thanks again, and thank you for letting me share my story. Thank you, Kevin. I gotta be honest here, the first two-thirds of your story had my attention, but the finale really drove it home. I find it very interesting that the encounters only seem to take place during that one particular summer. I'm tempted to suggest that perhaps... It had more to do with who was at camp rather than what. 
but the final portion of the story validated through an outside source. So I suppose that's good enough for me. Thank you again for taking the time to share. I still can't get over that ending. Our next caller should sound quite familiar. Matt from Virginia called in last week with a story that sounded eerily similar to the classic mirrored men encounters I've been detailing for the past year. Well, Matt heard my plea last week and called back with a more thorough description. Hey, this is uh, Matt from uh, Northern Virginia with the story about the mirror men. I got in touch with my friend. I haven't talked to him in a while. Uh, asked him what he could remember about it. Um, basically, uh, from what we can both remember from talking about this for a while, the mailbox from his house is about 100 to 150 feet away from his house. So still far enough that we could see it, but uh, close enough that we could see it, but far enough that we can't really get like facial features and everything. Not that we could really see their faces. They were wearing cloaks, but like we could see, we could see like an, I swear I saw an arm, but other than the cloaks, we couldn't really see many features of them. But from what we could see, ish, it looked kind of like they had jerky movements when they were walking, but each one of them had the same jerky movement when they were walking. Other than that, I, we can't really remember much. It was about, like seven years ago um i know it's not much more detail but that's all we can both remember from talking about it uh hope that helps a bit uh love the podcast thank you thank you matt for those additional details it seems that most witnesses are either too far away or it is simply too dark to make out any distinguishable marks on these individuals So, you're not the only one unable to describe any discernible features. Thank you again for updating us, and let us know if a couple more guys pop up. When I was a kid, we lost one of our dogs and buried him on the edge of the woods. This dog was not particularly nice. He would often jump on us, bite us, and chase us around the yard. Not in a friendly way. So even in death, we feared him. We avoided his grave at all costs, especially at night. For some reason, I had it in my head that his spirit would leap from his resting place and chase me all over again. Needless to say, that did not happen, but the next call brought all those memories flowing back. No one is sure whether or not it was 
was her nana stoke Ben or an old dog from the area beforehand. Uh, the house is recently new, however, um, and only her family have lived in it from around the 40s or 50s when it was built for the local steelworks and power plant that were built nearby. A few weeks after I had moved in, my fiance was upstairs with her son doing something or another while I waited downstairs for her so we could eat and watch TV. I was in a small back room which was attached to the kitchen. The kitchen door which leads out into the back garden was a big old barn style door and as I was sitting waiting I heard a scratching noise on that same door like a dog was scratching the bottom of the door like dogs do when they want to come inside and this freaked me out but I tried to ignore it and it eventually stopped after a few seconds I guess this was my first and only experience with the dog a year or two before I moved in, my fiancé told me that her sister and nephew were in the front room of the house, and they both saw a black dog. They were scared of it, as there were no longer any dogs that lived in the house. Uh, not long after, my fiancé and her sister's uncle uh, had a heart attack, but he thankfully survived the ordeal. Forward again to when I had lived here for a few years and had my own children, uh, my family would come to visit. My mom, who I told you about in my previous story, who uh, saw a little girl uh, ghost in her room, uh, also told us she saw a dog in the front room. It was described differently from my sister-in-law's encounter, but still uh, a dog that we didn't know of. Again, not long after, my mom's sister, my aunt, died suddenly from cancer. It seemed this dog appeared to tell us of bad news. I've heard a few stories of people who say that uh, they would have warnings of death of, uh, of, off of a deceased family member, or even objects in the house falling and moving. Uh, maybe we had a dog of doom. Uh, my my fiancé went to see a medium with a few friends one time, she was highly recommended and seemed quite genuine regardless of people's beliefs toward them. Uh, she told her that she could see the dog and reassured her that she would take the ghostly dog off her hands and it wouldn't bother us again. Needless to say, there have been no more circumstances involving the dog and hopefully it will stay that way. Anyway, thank you for your time. Thank you for your submission. I don't know what it is about ghostly dogs, but to this day, the thought still sends a slight shiver up my spine. Thanks again. Remember Scott from the past few episodes? He had the Bigfoot sighting outside his uncle's cabin and a giant spider sighting in Bosnia. Well, Scott is back with another creepy account. This one more haunting than the others. Hey, it's Scott calling again with a different story. Um, um, I actually do remember the date of this one. It was um, uh, September 11th, the day of the attacks. Uh, I wasn't anywhere near the attacks in New York or Pennsylvania. 
but um, uh, it was in the military at the time, and um, the unit I was a part of was uh, activated um, to provide additional security at, at various locations that they felt were um, high priority, and I'm assuming that they thought that these might possibly be targets if this was uh, going to be a series of ongoing attacks. Um, can't tell you the specific location of the facility, but uh, it was in the general vicinity of the San Francisco Bay Area. And um, they parceled out our unit to provide additional security personnel for a variety of different locations. And myself and seven other guys were sent to this particular facility. Um, from the outside, it looked like kind of just a normal business or government building, not particularly remarkable, but on the inside, it actually had a very interesting decor with an open ceiling plan and then um, actual offices and, and cubicles, but no, the walls didn't actually go up to the ceiling, so a lot of echo and reverberation in the room if somebody made a lot of noise. And uh, the guys that normally worked that location, we were just there to supplement them, so we just decided to, you know, alternate when one team was inside the other team would be outside of the building and then vice versa and um they were giving us the guys that had worked there done security there on a regular basis gave us a little bit of a briefing and then one of the guys as he was walking by me he goes good luck man because this place is weird he didn't elaborate i just thought he was uh, alluding to the unusual uh, architecture and so anyhow we started our our work and we were outside at first and uh, uh me and my partner were just kind of walking around doing patrol like you would with any security operation, uh, except for we had all our battle rattle on. I walked into this one section, this is out in the grass outside, walked this one section and it was noticeably colder than the ambient air. And I was like, wow, that's kind of weird. And I stepped back, stepped back in, and it was still noticeably cold. And it was about a six foot diameter circle um, and it was it was stark difference. It wasn't wasn't well. It's a little chilly. It was it was a definite difference. But anyhow, night progresses on, and uh, it's our turn to rotate to the interior. And so we're just kind of walking around and talking a little bit. And uh, he had to go to the bathroom. My partner had to go to the bathroom, and and so I'm just kind of wandering around, and I hear a radio. That had been on, had not been on earlier. I heard the radio playing. And I mean, that's kind of weird. There's nobody here tonight. So we went in. I figured somebody's, you know, clock radio or something. They had an alarm set, and I was just going to turn it off so it's not playing music. Found the office. Sure enough, there's a radio on. Turn it off. Um, oh, I'd say half hour later, the scene repeats itself. So now I'm like, okay, somebody's somebody's having fun messing with us. All right. So I turn the radio off again. And um, we rotated outside and came back inside an hour later and uh, music's on again. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to fix this prankster this time. And so I went and unplugged it. And um, we're wandering around, come back, it's on again. And I'm like, how is it possible? Now you have to understand the setup in this particular hallway where this radio kept coming on. There literally is only one way in. There. You come from the main gallery area down a hallway. There's no exterior door in that hallway. And into the office. And then it was one of the back cubicles where this uh, radio kept turning on and off. 
I, I go back into this office. The music's playing, but as soon as I open the the main door to this little office section, the music stops. So I was like, ah, I got you now. And I, I just think it's somebody just one of the other regular security guys maybe just messing with us or something. So uh, I, I didn't really run, but I kind of hustled it down to the cubicle and radio still unplugged. There's nobody around. I was like, okay, I'm. It's all fun and games, but I'm kind of done with this now. I'm gonna, I'm gonna catch who this person is. And so, told my partner, I said, why don't you keep doing the rounds? I said, but I'm kind of tired of, of this. Uh, I'm gonna catch this prankster and, uh, you know, deal with that. So he's like, okay, whatever. Um, it didn't seem to really phase him too much. Yeah, I think he just figured kind of the same thing as me that somebody was just playing games. So, um. I got into a little shadowy alcove that, you know, where I had a view of the own, like I said, the only way you could go into this hallway and just kind of camped out. I was like, I'm going to catch this person. I'm tired of them playing, playing me for the fool. It was about oh, maybe seven minutes. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, this person's like really committed to this, uh, this prank. We must have, you know, some idea that, that I'm, I'm watching for them. About that time, I, um, for lack of a better description, I see this apparition of a, of a woman in what looked like a formal evening gown, and she's not really walking, but she's kind of floating out from that hallway and across the Galleria area, and when she got about to the middle of it, and, and remember, I'm in this really dark alcove. There's just some night lights on. The, the facility's actually pretty dark inside. And I'm uh, secreted it away. She pauses, turns, looks right at me. Um, features weren't clear. It was clearly a, a human form, but it's not like you could make out facial features or anything like that. Looked at me for maybe a second, and I didn't have any feelings of, you know, malevolence or peace or anything. It was more just like, what the heck am I looking at here? And then... She looked forward and drifted towards a solid wall. There was no door there, and out of sight. And at that time, my partner came back, and he says, you've been playing games, and I, of course, didn't want to have him think I was crazy or an idiot, so I didn't say anything to him about the sighting. And, and um, then we went about our business, and nothing else uh, occurred um, that evening at, at that location. We were there for a couple more days. Now, the cold spot was still there. The cold spot continued. Um, we were there for, I think, a week. I think it was seven full days, and then they decided that you know, we could go back to our normal assignments, and we returned back to our base of operations. But uh, but uh, no, no other unusual events during the week we were there, save for the fact that the, that cold spot was there and every night it was in the same spot and uh but that's it anyhow and uh that's it as far as the stories i have for you i hope more people call in and share their experiences um, i really enjoy the podcast and keep up the good work thank you have a good night bye-bye thank you as always scott i believe i finally found someone with more experiences in strange happenings than i have a couple aspects to your story that I'm a little curious about. First, is it possible that the radio also ran off of batteries in addition to the wall plug? That would explain how it was able to function even after you've unplugged it 
and only makes it a faulty power switch away from explainable. And secondly, was the cold spot you experienced lower than the surrounding areas? I spent some time in San Francisco and I can tell you firsthand that it's often cold and damp there. So even if the spot is only a foot or two lower than the surrounding area, the temperature could be changed drastically. Now, even if that explains the first two points, that still does not dismiss the apparition that you witnessed. Like Kevin's call at the top of the show, the third act really adds another level of validity to this story. Thank you again for your contribution. I really enjoy your stories and wide array of subjects they cover. Our next caller is also a familiar voice. Tonight must be the night for repeat offenders. Eliza called in a few times with various stories that took place on her outdoor adventures. This next one is no different. Here is Eliza's story. Hey Derek, uh, this is Eliza. I've called in a couple times now and um, this last podcast uh, sparked a memory for me. Um, I live in the PNW and uh, I actually, for years, I was a firefighter and I think I'd said previously I love backpacking and um, your, uh, the Sasquatch story in the last episode uh, along the Snake River spurred this memory for me. Um, because I, I've definitely gone to know that area and I backpacked there for a couple of weeks this oh, years and years ago it was probably 2006 or so and um, it was just a, it struck me just how strange it is there um, it's really steep and and the hills are pretty barren there's not a lot of trees and you can really like see you know vast space for how steep and hilly it is very eerie feeling there too and saw lots of elk uh we had we saw bears and we got kind of messed with with a bear one night well we assume i we actually didn't see it but um and so i had this memory of this place and uh years later i was firefighting and um i got partnered up with this old logger who uh he's just a total interesting character of a, of a guy. His name was Glenn, and I can't for life remember his last name, but he was an older guy and just a, a master sawyer uh, cutting trees, and, and so I, I spent a couple days with him and his buddy um, just learning some um, sawyer techniques, and, um, and I actually would ask people, I would collect Sasquatch stories, <laughs> just because you know, the people that you're around with uh, that line of work are all have spent quite a bit of time outside and generally are from the area. And so I got all kinds of great stories, but his was really cool. And it made me think of it because of that story, because when I got to know him, he told me that he and his brother way back in like, must have been the 50s, built the trail system that I went on on our two week trip uh, along the Snake River, and um, and he totally like remembered like I I remembered some of the buildings, and he told us you know him and his brother spent months coming in and out of that area building those trails, and that he and his brother were were multiple times harassed by something 
coming into their camp and jangling stuff around and screaming and um, they never they only uh, saw it I guess once or what they assumed what it could have been and he said that they were cresting a hill and several hills away he said they saw some big hairy creature just booking it across the hillside and they said they know what bears look like and they know what elk looks like and they definitely um, were pretty sure it was a Sasquatch so there you go <laughs> that's a good one love the podcast so uh, take care alright bye bye thank you as always Eliza always great to hear from you Your story reminded me of a very infamous Bigfoot encounter that took place back in the 1920s. Now, I had intended to revisit the local monster segment for this episode, but I thought I could combine that with the following story that Eliza's reminded me of. So, without further hesitation, the story of Ape Canyon. In the shadow of Mount St. Helens lies a canyon where a series of strange encounters have emerged over the past century. The first of these claims surfaced when a group of five seasoned miners headed out to the area on a seemingly routine expedition in search of gold. But what they found instead was something that none of the men could have ever anticipated. It's July 1924, and the team is working their promising gold claim with high hopes of striking it rich. And among the men was Fred Beck, who early on in the trip complained of a toothache. It was a long hike back, so he asked the most experienced woodsman in the group, Hank, if he would take him into town to see a dentist. But Hank refused to leave and replied, Neither God nor the devil could get me away from here. And so the mining trip continued, with the men panning for gold day in and day out, taking refuge at night in their sturdy log cabin. Things were going smoothly. That is until one night, when they heard strange whistling sounds echoing across the canyon. Although the men were accustomed to hearing noises at night, something about this sound was notably disturbing. Then, the following evening, they heard yet another unfamiliar sound, as if something was loudly thumping its chest. And pretty soon, they all had an eerie sense that someone or something was watching them. This put the men on edge. Even Hank, who knew the land better than anyone, was becoming anxious. When they first arrived at the camp, he had noticed several large footprints scattered around the area, the likes of which he had never seen. Back then, he thought nothing of it. Perhaps it was a bear. But now he was beginning to think it was something else entirely. The next day, Hank and Fred went to get water from a nearby spring and brought along their rifles just in case. And it was there that Hank saw something lurking in the shadows about a hundred yards away. He yelled to Fred, who turned just in time to see a huge, seven-foot, hairy man-beast. Hank raised his rifle and fired off three shots, hitting a tree and spraying bark in all directions. The astonished Fred fired off several more shots, but the creature had turned and fled. When the shaken men returned to the cabin, they told the others of their terrifying encounter. We gotta get out of here. There's some sort of mountain devil out there. You sound like a madman. Ain't no such thing as mountain devils. Yes, there is. I saw it, and I shot my rifle at it, too. Hank and Fred eventually convinced the men to go, but now the sun was setting, and their last chance to leave had already passed, and so the men would have to wait until first light. All they had to do 
us make it through the night. And so they hunkered down and drifted off to sleep with their rifles in hand. Morning couldn't come soon enough. It was around midnight when a loud thud awoke the men. Something hit the cabin. Fred saw Hank kicking and screaming and tried to calm him down. Quiet, quiet, be quiet. They heard heavy footsteps trampling through the brush right outside the cabin. Whatever it was, it was huge and there was more than one. The men readied their rifles and then it began. thunderous barrage of boulders rained down upon them. The hysterical men fired at the roof, the walls, the doors, until suddenly everything went quiet. Hold your fire! The men looked at each other. Was the siege over? Maybe if we stop firing, they'll leave us alone. Hank squinted through a gap in the logs and saw several shadowy ape-like creatures passing by. He turned back to the group. I think they might be leaving. Suddenly, a large hairy arm reached inside and grabbed hold of an axe. Fred tried to wrestle it out of his clutches. Hank fired his gun. The creature released its grip and pulled its arm back out. The terrified men tried to regain their composure. But as soon as the arm withdrew, another assault began. The cabin began to shake violently, as if the creatures were trying to knock it down. The men wedged a post against the door, trying to secure it. Hank screamed incessantly and wildly fired his gun. For God, you mountain devils! The entire night would go from a fierce battle to complete silence, over and over again. Fred and Hank led the charge, while the other men cowered in the corner. But as they waited for the next attack, Hank began to sing. If you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. If you leave us alone, we'll leave you alone. And we'll all go home in the morning. And we'll all go home in the morning. The night seemed endless, but soon, through the veil of smoke, Fred noticed a glint of light. Was it morning already? A welcome sense of relief swept over the men. The creatures had left. The attack was over. Somehow, they had made it through the night. The men grabbed only their essential items and cautiously exited the cabin with their guns drawn. Once outside, Fred spotted one of the monsters on a nearby ridge. He fired, hitting the creature who toppled into the gorge. Better them than us. The men made their way out of the canyon and headed towards the nearest ranger station. Fred urged everyone to keep their ordeal a secret for fear of ridicule. But upon their arrival, Hank couldn't help himself and described their bizarre encounter to the ranger. Word quickly spread, leading to the great ape hunt of 1924, where people from all over swarmed into the canyon in hopes of catching a glimpse or perhaps even taking down one of the creatures. But their search was in vain, and no solid evidence was ever found. After the encounter, the area was renamed Ape Canyon, and Fred Beck would go on to tell the story of that night where he and four of his friends would be attacked by a pack of menacing beasts that some say may still be out there today. That retelling of the classic story was by The Folklorist. You can find a link to his YouTube channel in the show notes for today's episode. And that's going to do it for this episode of Monsters Among Us. But before I sign off, please remember to rate and review the show on iTunes. I noticed a few new reviews over the past couple days, all of which positive. 
I can't express how thankful I am that you took the time to share your opinions. In addition, each review helps put the show on other listeners' radar, and in turn deepens the pool from which we collect our stories. So if you haven't already, please consider a rate and review today. Follow the show on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And if you have a story you'd like to share, hit up the hotline at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Or you can visit the website for more details. I'd like to thank the amazing Warren Pon Abbott for his vocal contributions. Be sure to check out his YouTube page on the episode's show notes to find out more about him. Music from tonight's episode was provided by Mayu and Nature World 1986. Thank you all for listening, and until next week. <laughs>